Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. In addition to your support, we welcome your feedback. Please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or by emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Alec Ross, Democratic candidate for governor of Maryland, author of Industries of the Future and former senior advisor for innovation and secretary Hillary Clinton State Department. Alec is the co-founder of a One Economy nonprofit organization and is a, a former middle school teacher in Baltimore City Public Schools. Alec, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Oh, goodness. That's all I've done for 23 years, man. <laughs> Look, it started when I came out of college. I put myself through college in part working on a beer truck and working as a midnight janitor. And I came to Baltimore 23 years ago and became a sixth grade teacher at Booker T. Washington Middle School in West Baltimore. You know, look, there's nothing I th- there's no job, I believe, that works uh, with with the public interest more in mind than our public school teachers. Uh, after teaching, I did voter registration in communities of color. Uh, and then worked at a nonprofit organization doing affordable housing and community development work. And then had an eight year run as a nonprofit entrepreneur. My company, One Economy, helped bring internet access into poor communities. Uh, we provided educational content and skills training into poor communities, urban and rural. Uh, thereafter, I continued to work in the public interest by going into government. Uh, after working on Barack Obama's presidential campaign, I served in his administration, first helping set up the technology, innovation, and government reform agenda, and then working on foreign policy for four years, coming up with innovative solutions to some of the world's nastiest foreign policy challenges. So I'm 45 years old, and the God's honest truth is that my pretty much my entire professional career has been working in the public interest. So a lot of our listeners uh, will be considering whom to vote for if they are registered Democrats in the state of Maryland uh, on June 26, 2018. They'll be determining which Democratic candidates they'll want to support with their vote. Uh, why, why should anyone consider you uh, for Democrat for, for governor? Well, there are a couple reasons. First of all, I'm the Democrat who can beat the Republican. I think Larry Hogan. Uh, Larry Hogan is not unbeatable, but I do think you have to have a candidate who can 
who can appeal to people across the state. And I think I'm, think I'm that candidate. And so big thing one is if you want to elect a Democrat who's going to beat the Republican, elect me. But the second thing is I bring a little different something mm-hmm. to this race than any of the other Democrats. You know, the other Democrats who, in this, who are in this race are overwhelmingly – it's sort of different variations of the same old, same old. You know, career politicians or people who have, who have spent their careers um, – you know, in the Annapolis farm system or working in county government. And I think that we need a bolder kind of leadership uh, that is going to be able to produce sort of non-incremental changes for the health and well-being of Maryland. And so I'm bringing an innovation agenda, a new face with big, bold new ideas, the likes of which I think you just aren't hearing from most of the other candidates. Sure. So I hear you distinguishing yourself from career politicians, but of course we've spoken about 24 years of public service that you've done, not in elected office, but uh, in through nonprofits and through public schools and education. I wonder, uh, I guess, what are some of the differences uh, that you are able to bring to the table by having not pursued a career? Or what's the difference between pursuing a career in public service and pursuing a career in, in, in politics? What it means is I'm not owned by corporate interests. You know, a lot of the people, including, oh, by the way, Democrats, you know, they're owned, you know, some are owned by developers or they're owned by healthcare companies or they're owned by, you know, a lot of them are sort of latched to a corporate interest. I am not. Uh, you know, I'm I'm able. I am fundraising right now. Uh, I've but got, not from corporate interests. Oh, I'm absolutely fundraising from corporate interests, but I'm not owned by any of them, and I'm and my fundraising isn't dominated uh, by any one piece of the Maryland economy, one any, one industrial piece. Um, and so, look, what I'd say beyond this is part of the difference between being an elected official and being somebody who's worked, say, at a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. Is being a politician, mm-hmm. I think, is a lot more about me, and working in a nonprofit is a lot more about we. Now, that isn't always the case, but you know, I do think that there is virtue and value in people coming out of the nonprofit sector and people who have done things in public service other than just put their own names forward, mm-hmm. uh, but who have really meaty, deep experience working for the public interest. Now, in the interest of helping voters determine who they might wish to select next June or if they're Republicans or independents next November 2018, could you differentiate yourself from some of the other Democratic candidates for governor who are not career politicians? There are a few individuals who are running who have not held elected office. Are they not also bringing a unique perspective? What's, how would you differentiate yourself compared to that? Well, they're certainly bringing different perspectives. I mean, look, I'll give one example with another candidate, Ben Jealous. Mm-hmm. So Ben is really focused on free college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I take a little different perspective. I think that the rhetoric and policies of the Democratic Party for the last 20, 30 years have been, if you go to college, you're a winner. Mm-hmm. If you don't go to college, you're a loser. And so I think that college is great. I went to college. I hope all three of my kids go to college. But I think that when all of your education policies are about getting people into college, we are really leaving behind very large numbers of people who choose not to go to college or for whatever reason can't go to college. And so my focus is on technical education and apprenticeships for non-college goers. I'm saying if we're going to spend taxpayers' money, let's not spend tens of billions of dollars 
on free tuition. Let's focus on making college affordable, but let's also focus on the education and needs of people who aren't going to go to college. So one of your main taglines for your campaign, Alec, is talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. Can you elaborate about how that uh, campaign slogan uh, fits into your policy platform, both within the context of education you just spoke, but also within the context of the minimum wage, of affordable child care, universal health care, and election reform? Yeah, so just a few small topics there, right? <laughs> yeah, no, look, I, there's no blue blood in this body. I grew up in coal country, you know, as I said earlier, put myself through college in part working as a midnight janitor and on a beer truck. And if there's one thing that I've learned in 45 years of life, it's that the kids that I grew up with in coal country and the sixth graders who I taught at Booker T. Washington Middle School in West Baltimore have the same God-given talent. They are made of the same stuff as the people who sat across the table for me in the White House Situation Room. The talent is everywhere. The opportunity is not. Most of the folks who sat around at the conference table in the White House Situation Room with me were people who had, a bu- had advantages that most of the people in inner city Baltimore or in coal country did not. And so when I think about various of the issues that you mentioned, you mentioned the minimum wage. Uh, I'm pretty certain that of all the gubernatorial candidates, I've actually spent more time working for minimum wage than anybody else. Um, And I know what it's like to get a check and look at it and think that there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. Be like, this can't be it. And so I am in favor of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Corporate profits are at all-time highs. We have not had a federal increase in the minimum wage since 2008. It's time for working Americans to get a raise. Now, we have had an increase in the minimum wage in the state of Maryland through the Maryland General Assembly, and uh, at least one member... Taking us from 9.15 an hour to 10.10 an hour. Still too low. Too low. Not ambitious enough. Well, it's not about ambition. You know, I think ambition has really nothing to do with this. It really is about... What can you, what can we, should we be doing for the people who are working at the bottom of the income spectrum? You know, what we have right now is we have a lot of people who are working at or around minimum wage, and minimum wage isn't a living wage. When minimum wage was first established, it was a, it was a living wage. Today, it's not. Uh, and so I do think that 9.15 an hour, which is where it's now, 10.10 an hour, which is where it's going, is not enough. Sure. So we so we're looking at a uh, talent and uh, creating opportunities. I'd like to ask Alec what the proper role of state government is in creating these opportunities. You've mentioned that in coal country and in perhaps West Baltimore, there are children who do not have adequate opportunities to achieve the same heights as the individuals who later populated the Situation Room of the White House. I wonder to what extent you see uh, the government of the state of Maryland having a role in affording individuals opportunities, or if you think there are other roles better served through the nonprofit sector, as you had previously uh, been employed, or through the private sector, for-profit sector. Uh, what is the role of the governor's house, of the state legislature, in creating these opportunities and equalizing that, le- that playing field that you alluded to earlier? Sure. A governor is not an emperor mm-hmm. uh, and should not be one. There are roles and responsibilities for the private sector, for civil society, for government. But the role of the governor and of state government is substantial. In our state, in the state of Maryland, and it's 6 million people, 
there is a $43.4 billion budget. Mm-hmm. And, the res- and how do we spend that money? What are the responsibilities? Well, a lot of it, uh, about $14 billion of that $43 billion goes to education. K-12 education, post-secondary education. So it's the appropriate role of the state to play a very consequential role, funding education and setting education policy. Another area is transportation. Uh, The state plays an enormously consequential role uh, in transportation policy. And so whether you are deciding to widen roads in in rural Maryland, whether you are focusing on mass transit, whether you are trying to decrease congestion on our, on our highways, ultimately the governor is the single most powerful and consequential person on that. And then a third thing I'd focus on is healthcare. You know, healthcare is a north of $10 billion budget item. Uh, and this is an area where I have a big difference of opinion with Larry Hogan. I think that we need to continue to march toward universal, affordable health care coverage uh, for every citizen of Maryland, where Larry Hogan has appointed um, an extremist from, I think, the Heritage Foundation to chair the state health board. And so the state, which, which administers Medicaid, which sets the health policy, mm-hmm. uh, which impacts most of the six million Marylanders, there's a third area that I think is of grand consequence when it comes to the role of the governor. So health insurance coverage, how do, you, uh, how, would, how do you propose to pay for universal health care in Maryland? Yeah, so I think that we start with uh, Medicaid for all. I think that you know, some people, when people say single payer, different people mean different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Medicare for all, is, that's a federal program. It can only be done federally. What I do believe is that by adding a public option and Medicaid specifically, allowing people to buy into Medicaid, will make affordable access to healthcare more accessible. Uh, and so it will, it will not get the number to zero, uh, but I do b- believe that it will make it substantially lower. And this is what's called the public option, bringing a public op- option into the Maryland exchange, I think will create more options and uh, more accessibility to more people. You spoke earlier about education and, and ensuring that there's adequate funding for education. Of course, you also said that uh, you don't, we don't need to uh, channel all of our resources towards making sure that a liberal arts education is something that's for every person, but perhaps there might be room for apprenticeships. Um, and then, uh, so I'd like to, since you are have participated in Baltimore City School System, you know that there's uh, a large dollar figure per pupil that's allocated to Baltimore City school children, also very famously uh, in Washington, D.C., which is uh, adjacent to the state of Maryland. Uh, You see among the highest per capita expenditure on students in the D.C. public school system, and yet the achievement and outcomes and test results in both Baltimore City and Washington, D.C., are not as high as many individuals would like, especially compared to neighboring jurisdictions that spend less per pupil but have much better outcomes in northern Virginia and and suburban counties like Montgomery and Prince George's and Maryland. So clearly, the solution is not throwing more money at the problem. Can you speak about how you will uh, promote uh, high-quality public education in Maryland, given that increasing the budget alone is not the solution? Right. So there are two points to make here. So first, you talked about per-pupil expenditures in Baltimore. This reminds me of the quote from the old British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, who said there are three kinds of lies. Lies, 
damn lies, and statistics. So when you actually unpack the per-pupil expenditure in Baltimore City, very little of that, no, I shouldn't say very little, an, exagger- an, an exaggerated amount of that never actually makes it to the school district or to the schools. So more than $3,000 per student per year, for example, goes to the Maryland Transit Administration for transportation. I have three kids in Baltimore City Public Schools. Neither of them, and none of the three of them, take a bus to or from school, yet $10,000 worth of taxpayer dollars go to the Maryland State Transportation Administration for transportation costs for them. Another big thing which wildly skews things is special education. Mm-hmm. So special education costs um, at federally mandated take up an enormous uh, percentage of the per pupil expenditures in Baltimore City. So when you strip out the funny money or the things that don't actually get to students, what you see is that the amount of money actually being spent on Baltimore City public school students is substantially lower than just taking the total budget and dividing it by the number of students. Now, having said all that, does there have to be necessary changes in governance and and bringing new efficiencies in so that uh, the capital can be spent more efficiently, effectively? Absolutely. Um, but look, I was a sixth grade teacher in Baltimore City Public Schools. I had one set of 30 textbooks for 100 students. That meant that my students, you, 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 that meant that my students couldn't take the textbooks out of the classroom. They couldn't take them home to do homework. So when I, when I think about resources in Baltimore City Public Schools, the idea that there is sufficient resources in our, in our public schools, the only person who would say that is somebody who hasn't actually spent much time in those schools. Of course, the solutions to some of those problems are not to be made through the governor's mansion, right? It's not in the budget process. You have appropriation of capital funds through the state legislature, but many of the operational funds are funded through local taxes, counties, and the city. Uh, you have Board of Education members, you have the State uh, Department of Education, which would fall within your purview. But a lot of the actual budget, when push comes to shove, is very local in Maryland, and they would determine if the money will be spent on textbooks or to what extent uh, money would be spent efficiently on, on school buses. Yeah, that's, I, I, I agree with all that. That's not inconsistent with anything that what, than what I'm saying. But uh-huh. what is interesting right now is... billion, $7.7 billion, which is the single largest driver of capital into the school districts, Mm -hmm. comes from Annapolis. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way in which education financing is done today is a byproduct of the Thornton Commission, which Mm -hmm. is going on 15 years old. It is the way that we fund education in the state of Maryland today is inequitable and anachronistic uh, and is a byproduct of something that, again, was put in place well over a decade ago. This is the purview of the state. And so, no, like I said earlier, the governor is not an emperor. You know, it is not the job of the state or of the governor specifically to fund education entirely or to set uh, education policy entirely. But there is a central role. There is a consequential role in resetting equity in education, whether it's in Baltimore City, Dorchester County, Talbot County, Charles County, Prince George's County, or anywhere else in the state is principally the province of the governor. Now, Alec, you have an interesting agenda item in education. You're interested in in, uh, computer science classes and coding for all public school students by 10 years old. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so look, computer code is the alphabet that much of the future is going to be written in. Mm -hmm. 
The jobs in the ports, factories, mines, and mills of men with big, strong shoulders carrying things and move things Mm -hmm. is being taken over by machines, by software. Where we do know there will be job growth is for anybody who does know how to code. We've got 20,000 openings today, today uh, in cybersecurity in the state of Maryland that we can't fill with average salaries nearly $100,000 a year. Uh, Most of those jobs don't require uh, a college degree, but they do require uh, the ability to code and understand code. I've spent a lot of the past many years in the technology sector, wrote a New York Times bestseller called The Industries of the Future. And when I spend time with entrepreneurs, when I spend time inside the buildings and examining the workforces where wealth is creating, being created, where jobs are being created, what I see are a lot of people who were born on either second or third base. Um, it's not universally the case, but you know, people who had a little bit of a leg up or who went, who had good educations, public or private, growing up, and bringing universal access to computer science education uh, to the 60% of public schools in Maryland that currently don't offer it will enable more young people to be a part, potentially, of areas of the economy that we know are high growth. I know from my time, again, being a school teacher, it does not matter what color your skin is. Mm -hmm. It does not matter whether mommy and daddy are rich or poor. If you're 13, 14, 15 years old, you're like a fish in water when it comes to the use of technology. So, Alec, a lot of our uh, listeners have, I'm hoping, have been intrigued by our discussion but are really wondering, who is Alec as a man? Why is he doing this? Obviously, you've lived in Baltimore City for some time. Could have run for mayor, delegate, state senator, congressman, whatever. There's a million things you can run for. You're choosing to run now. And they want to know, why are you choosing to run? What are your motivations? I know there's a story you spoke about healthcare earlier. You, you want Medicaid for all. And there's a story about uh, your son, um, who uh, Sawyer, who had uh, thyroid tumors. Can you speak about your motivation to run for elected office, and particularly now and for this position? Yeah, so now and for this position, a lot of it comes down to the Kerwin Commission. We have a once every 15 year opportunity to reset education policy and funding. Mm -hmm. That is so much more important than who the governor is at any, you know, one four year period of time. And so what's really throwing me into the race now Mm -hmm. is knowing that whoever is elected governor next is going to have 15 years of impact on people going to school in the state of Maryland. And when I look at the rest of the field, I only see one education governor among them, and that's me. You know, I've been a teacher. I've, I've, I've studied technology and science and written about that which is shaping the future. The time is now for Maryland to have an education governor. Maryland's never had an education governor. Larry Hogan wouldn't even pretend to be an education governor. And so the, this office at this moment is really compelled by, I think, the imperative brought on by the Kerwin Commission and the opportunity to reset how we finance and how we finance education for the next 15 years and the policies that we attach to it. So as we approach the end of this podcast episode, a final question. I'd like to ask you to speak to the people of the state of Maryland about what you hope your legacy and your impact 
will be on this state and on their lives. Speak to them about why you've been motivated to work for the State Department, to create one economy, to work in an inner city school system, to write industries of the future, and now to run for office. Please speak to the people of Maryland about what you're hoping to accomplish, what you hope your impact will be, and why it is that you've even begun to trot down this path. Yeah, look, it's uh, it's rooted entirely in the belief that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. What would I want my legacy to be? What I would want my legacy to be is you don't have to have a rich mom or a rich dad to be able to compete and succeed in tomorrow's world. You don't have to live in one of the rich zip codes to be able to go to a good school. You don't have to have a privileged social network to be able to get access to a good job. You know, I some people describe me as they say I'm well balanced. I got a chip on both shoulders. You know, one chip comes from having worked on a beer truck and as a midnight janitor, and the other comes from having taught sixth graders at Booker T. Washington Middle School. Given where I come from, and given the genius that I've seen in some of the poorest communities in Maryland, I cannot help but believe that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And as governor, what I would what I would seek to do is enable the rise of the rest. Not at the expense of people who are already doing well. I'm doing well. I am now, you know, a couple decades past being a midnight janitor. I'm a couple decades past uh, working on the beer truck. I come at this from a position of relative privilege, but what I believe is that we can enable the rise of the rest. We can make opportunity a function of something more than who's your mommy, who's your daddy, what zip code are you growing up in. I think that we can restore the American dream by reinvigorating our commitment uh, to enable the rise of the rest. That has been Alec Ross, Democratic candidate for governor of Maryland, an author, former advisor in Hillary Clinton's State Department, co-founder of a nonprofit, and a former public school teacher in Baltimore City, who speaks fundamentally about themes of justice, of uh, improving access to the American dream through education, drawing a direct correlation between education policy and long-term economic growth, speaking about opportunities to to use higher education to find a place in the economy for everyone, Uh, speaking about teaching children how to uh, code and find a place in the new information economy of today and tomorrow. He speaks about being the education governor and having a well-balanced approach which he uh, speaks tongue-in-cheek of as being a chip on both shoulders. He fundamentally speaks about advancing the public interest by creating a pathway for the rest to rise, the rise of the rest. And with that, Alec, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today on Public Interest Podcast. Thank you for having me, Jordan. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.